0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Haggai is one of the most fascinating books in the whole of the Word of God to me. It's just two chapters tucked away at the end of the Old Testament and uh, it takes about three or four minutes to read the two chapters and you can quickly move on. I just want to spend some time, maybe over the next couple of weeks, or depending on the circumstances with Don's situation, and look at Haggai and see what it has to say for us today. So I want to read the first eleven verses. First eleven verses of Haggai says this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltia governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you will never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, "'Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I might be glorified,' says the Lord." You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." an innocuous book tucked away at the, old te- at the end of the Old Testament at a very specific time. It's actually, we'll come to that in a com- couple of moments. We are given clear indication of when this book is written. But whenever one reads the Bible, we do so with the understanding that God always speaks into history. He speaks into a context. And to understand what he is saying, then we need to understand the context. The Christian faith as we know, is not built on an idea that there is some timeless way above us deity, some way above us God, who every now and then issues timeless truths. We believe far more than that. We believe in a God who is unchanging, but speaks into history. We believe God understands the context of where we are, and he has written this book so that we can be moved forward in our relationship with him and to see his purposes fulfilled. God is very specific when he speaks and when he speaks into our context. And so it was 18 years after the people of Judah had returned to Jerusalem from exile, God raises up Haggai. The context is quite important to our understanding of the book. 200 years earlier, the 12 tribes of Israel had divided. There was 12, uh, 12 in total. 10 were in the northern kingdom and 2 were in the southern kingdom. And they became known as the northern and southern kingdom. And we have a picture here that shows the top part is the northern kingdom, the southern part is Judah and Israel. The southern part looks roughly the same size, but it isn't because mainly is desert. It's mostly the Negev, it's, it's pretty barren. So actually the fertile area is mainly in the north and the, really the, the barrenness is in the south. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south. And for a number of years, the northern kingdom was attacked by Assyria, they were dispersed, and they have never been reunited. They have never come back from exile, even to this day. Then, they were, then the southern kingdom later on was attacked by a nation or an empire called Babylon, which is roughly Iran and Iraq. So you have two different areas. Because of the divided kingdom, one dispersed, never to return, one dispersed that we see will come back. So after, about 70 years after the southern kingdom had been dispersed and taken into exile, the man rose to power by the name of Cyrus. You may know his name, you may have come across him. Cyrus had immense, immense power. First of all, he conquered Babylon. And Babylon was the biggest and most powerful empire the world had ever seen in that day. And he was, up until then, probably one of the most remarkable men throughout the whole of history. And when he became king, he did an, an amazingly unique thing. He said, of all the people that I have taken into this country from exile, all the people that have been transferred here as prisoners or whatever, I want to send them back. I want to send them back to their own nations, so they can reestablish their religions and they can reestablish their cultures. He makes this unique announcement, this unique decree, and we still have it today. It was put on this, it's called Cyrus's Cylinder. It's quite small, but it's extremely long, extremely, well, I was gonna say boring, it's not that. But I've just paraphrased it into this. He wrote it on that, and it would have been put in a cylinder, and it says this, I want everyone to go back to their home country. I want all of those that we brought into captivity to be released and and have the freedom to pursue their own own religions and establish their own culture. This is a historical reality. That cylinder, until 2010, was in the British Museum, When for four months it was sent back to Tehran to be put on public. And virtually it seems as everybody, like one in five of the people who went through the museum to see it. Such was the historical standing of this man Cyrus and his decree. So this is all historical fact. And so part of this uniqueness is what Haggai comes and says. We know that he spoke on this given date at this time of the year to this situation God is being incredibly specific about what he is trying to say here. And so, as we enter these weeks of autumn, ironically, it was autumn time, two and a half thousand years, that this was written, that this prophet arose amongst his people and spoke. It was late August, early December, two and a half thousand years ago. That's a northern hemisphere autumn. And God speaks to Haggai and to the southern kingdom part of which we have already read. As we go into autumn, and then, you know, the clocks have gone back and already we're missing that extra hour, of daylight and night, I believe that in many ways, what it is for me, that some of the challenges that come out of this, this passage are, are incredibly relevant. How do we continue to be God's people in this time? How do I continue in my life to be God's hands and feet? in the situation that I find myself? How am I to be God's hands and feet in my neighborhood? How do I be what God wants me to do? This thing, I think there's something, well for me, about autumn that sort of calls us to this as we go into the, into the winter. There's something of how do we get through this? What is God saying to us? And so, here two and a half thousand years ago is a story of a man challenging a people of how they will be the people that God wants them to do? How will they be the people doing what God has for them? And you know, the wonders about Haggai is that we know virtually nothing at all about him. Nothing is recorded. His his own book doesn't tell us anything about him. We don't have any real history at all about him. Here we have this unknown prophet speaking an incredibly challenging word, if I can put it like that, to the southern kingdom, and we will see why. You know, I was thinking about this week, I, I, I thank God for the unknown people of church. And again, this is a good confession for me, I get really uneasy, I get a little bit nervous when I hear or read about Christian superstars saying this or saying that, and everybody just listening and accepting what they say. You know, even the two words, Christian superstar, makes me nervous. I don't think that they should go in the same sentence because we serve a savior who came and died and rose again and served. Was it not he who said I came not to serve but to not to be served but to serve? And I love the fact that this is an unknown prophet speaking a powerful word. You may have if you've been around me very often you'll hear this I'm like a broken record. I love ordinary I just love ordinary. I love ordinary people, ordinary Christians who are doing their best in everyday given situations, going about their work quietly. To me, to be ordinary is to be wonderful. It's the highest compliment personally I can give anybody. So if you hear me saying they're a really good ordinary person, that's the highest thing I can say. Just faithfully going about doing what God has called them to do. You know, the kingdom of God is not about big personalities or the call to follow the superstars of the faith, they have a role. But it's about going about our our work, says he, getting there eventually, on a day-to-day basis, faithfully doing what God has called us to do. If you ever get the opportunity to go to Wales, to God's own country, (laughs) (laughs) at least you all knew who it was. There wasn't a question, oh, where do you mean? You obviously knew, come on. If you ever get the chance to go to Wales, one of the scenes of the landscape that will strike you is the huge amount of chapels that are there. Not Anglican churches, but we call them chapels. And this is a very typical one. And they are throughout Wales. And Wales is a really small country. And there are over 6,400 chapels throughout, uh, throughout Wales. And to understand the background, one needs to understand that in the Middle Ages, the chapels were built as opposed to Anglican churches. They had become a, something of a di- division, especially between the churches in Wales and the churches of England, around the way that the church was running itself. It, the, the, Welsh aspect didn't, the Welsh aspect of the church didn't like the, the liturgy, it didn't like the cloaks, it didn't like all that was going on with it. So they set up their own church movement, and they, so instead of going to church, they went to chapels and so so many chapels were set up. So today in Wales, in the region of 80 to 90 percent of people would say they are not churchgoers, they are chapelgoers. They are non-conformist. They did not conform the way the Anglican church did things. So today, Wales is a chapel-going nation, and this is in part because of theological reasons, but I have to admit, and this is Probably nothing to be proud of. It was partly set up because the Welsh didn't like the way that the English did things. That will go down well with a Kiwi audience, but and so that in Wales there are over six thousand four hundred. I say all this for a reason. Whenever you go into one of these chapels, and they can be three, four hundred years old, you will see in most of them plaques on the wall, on the plaques on the wall of the chapel, or they may have been engraved into the, the wood or into the stone or whatever it is, things like this testifying to people who had served down through the years, faithfully, and it's quite easy, you'll go into a place and you'll see a plaque or you'll see something engraved in the wall that says, faithfully served God in this place, 1740 to 1770. There's another one that says, served his master as Sunday school teacher for 30 years, 1763 to whatever, 30 years after that. I have no idea who any of these people are or if any of their descendants are in the same area. But I do know that their faithful commitment to God's kingdom, their passion to make a difference, to serve faithfully made it possible for people who were born in Wales to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, faithfully preached down through the centuries, generation after generation. These were nameless people who never stood on platforms, who never did anything flashy, didn't, you know, this is pre-anything modern, but they had a sense of a call of God upon their life to be faithful to what he had called them to. They're not going to get the credit, they're not going to get the limelight, they're not going to get any hero status, but they were faithful, faceless people who went about the kingdom of God. Haggai is one such person. You know, when I come, when I come to church and I love coming to church, and I love seeing all the different age groups, I love seeing the different ethnicities around us. But you know, I'm not just saying this, but I love our older folks. I love the younger folks, but I also love our older folks especially, because it is their faithfulness, it is their dedication, their serving down through the years that makes possible what we enjoy today. That through the faithfulness of generations, we have a faith. We have the ability to declare the good news of Jesus from this place. Nameless people, but who are named by God. They caught a vision of his kingdom and have been faithful ever since. But to most of us, they will be nameless. There is nothing quite like seeing an older person, in my opinion, who still shines with the love of God, who is finishing well, and who has not allowed life to make them bitter and twisted. Something we need to admire, something that we need to learn. There is a role that God has for all of us, and many of us will not be on the pulpit or on the platform, but nevertheless have an incredibly important role to play. See, the story of Haggai is this. It's about faithfulness. They have been back in Jerusalem for 18 years. This return to Jerusalem was in 538 BC. And for all this time, they were supposed to be building the temple. They were sent back. The decree from Cyrus was they were to go back. And when they went back, they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple. But they had stopped, something had happened. I don't know what it is. Scripture doesn't really tell us what it is. Maybe they'd got discouraged, maybe they'd given up, maybe they'd faced opposition, but something had stopped them from building the temple. And God raises up Haggai to challenge them. Guys, you've been here 18 years, I've sent you back with this purpose, I've spoken to you through my prophets, I've spoken through you, but nothing is going on. What is happening? And then he says these words, (coughs) which we read earlier. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month and on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiah, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And he challenges that. Friends, the first thing that really impacts me out of this is, there are always reasons for not doing what God wants. There are always reasons for not doing what God wants. They were rebuilding a temple. And for those of us who have followed Jesus for many years, those of you who have been around any teaching that says we know that we don't need a temple, we are the temple of God. And what the message for us is not about anything to do with a building, and so whenever you read Haggai and you come across the word temple, you need to insert the following, things like the kingdom of God, the purpose of God. So the challenge to us from this book is not about rebuilding a temple, but but not delaying on seeing the kingdom of God, not delaying on seeing the purposes of God fulfilled in our life and in our situation. Talking about a temple there, we are the now are the temple. But the purposes of God is what we should see that saying to us. We as followers of Christ should be focusing on what his kingdom is all about. But for some reason, these people had stopped. Don't know the reason. Maybe it was now is not the right time, they thought. We will focus on those things tomorrow, they may have said. We have other things to do. There are too many difficulties you know, we can't be expected to do all this stuff ourselves. Oh, too many hassles, perhaps we'll get around to it tomorrow, or maybe that real killer, I'm really too busy on other things. Maybe they had become comfortable in Jerusalem. They were home, and it's always good to be home. There's something special about being home. We are in our own land, so why fuss about things that we can leave until tomorrow? We have been in exile. We are now enjoying some peace, so let's Take our time to get this thing sorted out. But God says through Haggai, that's not on. That's not what it's about. I have not brought you back from exile for you not to fulfill my purposes. You know, there are dangers. <laughs> They're in dangers of being involved in, and being part of a large church like Gateway. You know, we have great staff. <laughs> we have incredible volunteers. We have great worship team, we have great speakers, we have a children's program that's second to none, we have young adults, we have everything, we have prayer teams, connect groups, point of connections, Alpha, Valiant Man, etc., so much going on for us in so many ways. You know, plus the last time that we did the figures on the podcast, we had something like just under 20,000 downloads in one year. It was something like 19,600 or something. Just so incredible stuff. You know, we can keep on ticking on as we are, being a church this size, and we can keep on enjoying it. But with all my heart, I believe God doesn't want that. What God is saying through Haggai to his people is, it's not about your past, it's about your future. You don't want to stay in your past. I have an exciting future for you. This is not about our past. This is about our future. That he wants the kingdom to come, I believe, with all my heart like never before in us and through us and to our community. You may just think, hey, Chris, you're having a bit of a rant because you're stiff. I believe, and I believe this with all my heart. I thank God for what he's done in the past, but I am more excited about the future that he will come and he will do things for us and through us and to us and we will scatter that abroad. But the kingdom of God always brings with it challenges like never before. It brings difficult things, it brings uncomfortable things and the kingdom demands so much for us. There are always reasons to, to say no, let's not do it now, let's just keep on doing what we're doing. And, you know, we will always have problems. We will always have difficulties. We will always have heartaches to deal with because we have people to take, care, to take care of people. But I still believe that what God was saying through Haggai was, the past is there. I have an incredible future for you. And, you know, sometimes I need to hear that. I don't know if you need to hear that, irrespective of your age. I need to know that God has still got my future. And it's 56 last birthday and, um, and I just think, gosh, how many years have I got left? How many years of ministry have I got? How many years of anything have I got? And if I don't have that belief, and I don't believe it's some wishful thinking, I believe that God still has a purpose for each and every one of us here and through Gateway. You know, one of the things that really challenged me when I th- read through this was that comfort can crush obedience. Haggai is, cha- is challenging Judah at multiple levels, and here is just one. They had, they'd had the emotional, the spiritual rush of returning from exile. They had experienced the incredible cut and thrust of overcoming initial hardships. They'd had people who tried to fight them and to kill them and to spoil the plans, and yet they had come through. They'd come through those initial hard days uh, and being, of being reestablished in their homeland. They had fought their battles, But somehow, the the focus around the temple had lost its sharpness. It had become less of a focal point than it once was, but it still should have been. Something that was once front and center, something that was once vibrant, exciting, life-giving, and so much more, wasn't anymore. Something had been lost, a walk with Yahweh that had started off exciting and thrilling, well maybe it wasn't quite the same now. This can easily happen to each and every one of us when it to the things of the kingdom, to seeing his kingdom come. If we become comfortable in our Christian walk or, or think things are a little bit easier at this moment, I believe it hinders obedience. You know that old saying that God is comforting for those who need comfort, but he is never safe. Aslan in the lion and the witch in the wardrobe which probably all of us, most of us have read, is described as a great lion, but never safe. He is a comfort to those who need him, but he will always have an active role for each and every one of us to play. You know, when I was working on this, uh, this message for today, I, I found myself struggling what, with what word to use in this context. What was it that slowed the Jewish people down on their return? What was it that came in to suffocate their obedience, what was it that that's just made them not so sharp as, as they once were? I didn't see it personally as purposeful disobedience. I didn't see it as complacency because when you say somebody's complacent, there's something of a smugness and an arrogance and that's not the word that this is all about. And then the word just struck me. They had become comfortable with where they were at. And God says, no, you've still got this to do. And God's word to his people through Haggai is so probing and provoking, especially when he says, look, this is how you are living and this is what is happening to my purposes. We are called to be kingdom people, not simply when things are going well, but all the time. And that was the challenge of Haggai to that people was that I want you all the time. I don't want you to put me on a back burner at all. I don't want to be second on your agenda. I know you've seen some incredible things, and I know you've got your own lives to live, as it were, to use the phrase, but I never, ever want to be second on your agenda. You see, I believe that when God isn't first in our lives, we will ultimately be dissatisfied, and I think this is what this chapter is all about. He says the word, Haggai says, now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your words, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Sometimes God allows dissatisfaction in our hearts, eating and yet never satisfied, drinking but not sated, earning but never having enough. If that is not a description of 21st century Western world, I don't know what ever will be. Men and women who are on the treadmill of success and power and money and leisure, forever wanting more and more and more and more is never enough. Bernard Levin, a British writer, <coughs> said this. He wrote this in the Times at the back end of the late 60s, and he says, "'Countries like ours are full of people "'who have all the material comforts they desire, (coughs) "'yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, "'understanding nothing but the fact "'that there is a hole inside them, "'and that however much food and drink they pour into it, "'however many motor cars and television sets "'they stuff in it, "'however many well-balanced children and loyal friends "'they parade around the edges of it, "'it still aches.'" And you know, we have often gone on to call that the Christ-shaped hole in each and every one of us. And so often we use that in the context of non-Christians. We use that in the context of, well, you'll never be satisfied until you find Christ and God will fill that God-shaped hole. But I actually believe that that is one, and that is a valid explanation of that. But I also believe that it carries a be careful sign for us. It carries a be careful sign for us as Christians. Yes, our eternal destination, eternity has been secure, but we can live unfulfilled, dissatisfied lives because we fill our lives with everything but Christ. We can be saved and dissatisfied, saved and unhappy, saved and unfulfilled, and the only thing that will fill the whole, W-H-O-L-E and H-O-L-E, in our lives, is God himself, and we need to be so careful of that. But also, I just want to throw this, that God, speaking through Haggai, he says to them, you know the dissatisfaction that you have with life? You know that dissatisfaction that you have? You don't have enough food, money goes, all those sort of things. You have plenty to drink. Do you think that that dissatisfaction is an attack of the enemy, or is something that I have sent your way? I sometimes really believe with all my heart that God sends dissatisfaction into our hearts and into our spirits. We may have all the money, we may have all the things that we need, we may have the kids or the grandkids around us, but he sends a dissatisfaction to our way because he wants to draw us closer to himself in the midst of those situations. We may be here today and we may be dissatisfied with life and it may be part of the plan of God that you are dissatisfied so that he will draw you back to himself. And sometimes dissatisfaction isn't based around the attack of the enemy or sin in a life. Maybe it's God himself saying, you know, you're never going to be satisfied unless you will really, really have me front and center. Absolutely front and center. You know, to push us further into a relationship with him is his desire. And that's maybe where the dissatisfaction comes from. You know, I love, I love this place and I love his people. Yet, I long for something more. I long for something more. Something more of his presence, more of his outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Inside of me sometimes there's a yearning that there must be more than what we've got. And I always used to get sort of dissatisfied when I was dissatisfied with myself, or wasn't I praying enough, or wasn't I doing what he wanted me to do, or what was the sin in my life? And I always thought that dissatisfaction was my fault. But over the last years, I have discovered that he allows satisfaction in my life to draw me closer to himself. And friends, I want to say it's OK to be dissatisfied if it ends up in drawing us closer to our living God. As I said, I love this place, but sometimes I go away and I said, Lord, we need more of you. We need more of your power. We need more of your healing. We need more of your Holy Spirit. And he says, draw closer. Come on, Chris, come closer. It's about letting him have everything. This is not about a gateway. This is about letting him have our lives more and more. You know, fourthly, Response requires effort. When we look at the world and bemoan the way it is, perhaps we need to say, well, what am I doing about it? What am I doing about it? Where can I respond? This is not a call to to feel guilty, but an honest appraisal of where we are in regards to our activity in the kingdom. You know, the command to take care of the widows and the poor those who cannot speak up for themselves. That is still part of our mandate as 21st century Christians. You know, God didn't need Judah to build his temple. They were the smallest. They were the most insignificant of all the tribes. But nevertheless, he did. And he tells them three things. And with these, we will close. He tells them three things about his kingdom and about building his temple. He says in verse eight, "'Go, bring down trees.'" And build, and these are the three things that I believe that God is saying to, to me, and I hope to, to some of you here this morning that I need to go, I need to bring down trees, and I need to build first of all, to go that I need to recalibrate my life in regards to my intentionality. Am I being intentional in my life about seeing the kingdom come, Am I being intentional around my neighbors, around my friends? around my community that, that as yet does not know him. You know, nothing will ever happen without us being intentional, whether it be successful at work, or raising good kids, or sporting success. We have to be intentional. To accomplish something means that we have been intentional, and it's the same with the things of God. Everything hinges on the choices that we made. You know, a couple of months ago, and this is a terrible confession to make, you know, a couple of three months ago, and I was speaking, I said, God, reminded me about praying for my, for my neighbors and doing that and praying. Oh, I was really good to start with. I did it for week after week, really good, but, there's been, but the last three weeks, I haven't done it. And I was sitting at home yesterday on my own and God says, I want you to pray for your neighbors. And I said, oh heck, I'm watching the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> and of course, Wales are winning everything again. <laughs> That's probably a lie, isn't it really? I've got to put a note in my diary pray for my neighbors because if I don't then I'm not that wonderfully good at my memory I need to be intentional i put it in my diary pray for my neighbors (laughs) to be intentional about how we do life and living and friends and family he says go bring down trees cut down the trees on the edges of Jerusalem There were an incredible amount this is about giving God what we have not lamenting what we don't have Lots of things I don't have, and I, I can't do. You know, I can't draw to save my life. I can't draw a box. I can't draw a straight line. So I'm not going to bother to give God my artistic ability. I'm not going to give him my voice. But there's no point in that. But I can give him what I have. You know, I'm a pastor. I love people, and I love to chat. I can give him that. I can. I've got a house. That I can invite my neighbors around. And I, we can have evenings together. And we can have fun together. And we can sit and chat. And maybe something of God will come out of that. I was thinking about this the other day. <clears throat> I'm trying to be purposeful with, with my neighbors. We have we have really good neighbors. We've got a, a sort of a Pakia family on one side of us. And we've got a, a Sikh family on the other side of us. And it's quite a lovely, lovely mix. And uh, the 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 Pakia family, that's the right word, way of saying it, um, they, they come round, they've got the keys to our door, if our alarm gets set off, they'll come and sort it out, and when they're away, we'll just take care of their house and everything. Really, really good neighbors. Uh, we are a, a Sikh family on the other side, and they're absolutely lovely, they're far more reserved, but they love cricket, absolutely love cricket. And what I'm going to say to you in the next 30 seconds, you may just think, yeah, that's stupid, that is really crazy but I really felt prompted to do this. If you're a cricket fan, please, you'll understand this, but if you're not a cricket fan, just stick with me. One of the ways that you can learn, I was gonna walk down there, but I might not get back up. Um, (laughs) One of the ways that you can improve in cricket is that if you get a cricket ball and you put a piece of string around it, or if you put it in a sock, and then you can get a bat and you can play it like this, and you can, the ball will swing and move. Some of you have just glazed over. But you can, you can do it, and it just helps you with your ability to play cricket. And that is really great. Within a couple of weeks of us moving in, we heard this sound next door. And it was our Indian neighbors playing exactly like that. So we had this thud, thud. And it was just, to me, it was music to my ears. It was absolutely wonderful. And so we've got to know them over the last three years. And it was about six months ago, and this is where I felt God really told me to be intentional about it. They, their ball would occasionally fly off and come into our, into, our, into our back garden. They would fly over, come in, and they would be so apologetic. And they would say, I'm so, so sorry. You, you mean, whatever. So every so often, we throw the ball over to them. A bit like that advert. You know that lady that gets a bar of chocolate? You've not seen that commercial on TV? Well, you'll watch it and you'll remember it now. But about six months ago, I was talking to them and the ball came over and they had come over and they'd just come around to see me cause I'd forgotten to throw it back. And I just felt them to say this. Guys, I said to them, guys, you know, not only can you have your ball back every time, you are free to come into our house, into our garden and help yourself to it. We don't need to be around. We don't need to be in. We don't need to be here. You are welcome to come into our house, into our garden, and take it whenever you need it. And you could see his face was amazed when he said that because that was not something he expected from, let's be honest, from this white boy, from this neighbor. And I said, you are welcome. Even if we're here and the ball comes over and we're slow to return it, you can come and get it. And I just felt really in my spirit that God was saying to me that despite our cultural differences, Despite our customs, despite the color of our skin, we could be something to this neighbors that would be radical to them and be completely different. They are the best neighbors now we ever want. They are so kind and they are so gracious to us. But you know, I want them to know that as someone who is totally different to me is welcome in my space, is welcome in my life, is welcome in my arena. And that there's no such thing as different colors or different religion. They just need to find Jesus Christ. And I really pray that they will. Am I making any sense here at all? That we want his kingdom to come and I can do it very simply by saying, come into my garden, come into my house. What's mine's yours. Because ultimately what I've got is not mine but his. And I have to be a steward of it. Musicians, please come and join me. Friends, let's not try to give God what we haven't got. Give him what we have. What are your passions? What are your likes? Who are your neighbors? How do you connect with them? What are your skills? What are your dreams? What's your life stage? What can you do for them? You know, he says, as he says to us, as he said to Moses, what's in your hand is the key and important thing. You know, go, bring, and build. You know, building is about unity. You don't build a temple. And you don't build a kingdom on your own. We build together. That we decide to be together, the people of God. We're never on our own. That we decide that we don't tolerate gossip. That we don't run each other down. We don't criticize one another. We think the best of each other. That we allow love to cover a multitude of things. That we share resources, energy, and time, and we love each other. That we go and we build and we bring down. You know, so over the next few weeks, our circumstances dictate in regards to Don and Karen and Karen's health. We're going to be in and out of Haggai. Could be next week, could be two weeks' time, I really don't know. But can I encourage you to go away, as I said, four minutes and you'll read it all. Do some background research. It is a phenomenal book written by an unknown man who calls us to be faithful to what God has called us. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.